All right. Our uh, passage today is from Matthew 2, 1 to 12, a very Christmassy uh, passage. But um, it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We, have, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was, be, was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them and it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. All right. Um, we are eight weeks into a sermon series where we're talking about the whole gospel story. And if you can believe it, we finally made it to the, Old, to the New Testament. Um, let's recap what happened so far. God made a world where he triumphed over the chaos of non-existence and brought the world into a working order. There was no suffering or evil or chaos at all. But then humans sinned in the Garden of Eden, and that led them to be exiled from God's presence there. Since God wasn't present... That chaos and non-existence and death that God abolished by creating the world began to seep back into the world. To start to restore his presence, God made a deal with Abraham that he would be with his family and that through them he would bless the whole world. Very quickly, it became obvious to everyone that Abraham's family really was blessed and that God really was with them. They grew into a whole big nation and God gave them a beautiful land. God gave him a king, and he made an unbreakable covenant with him, that there would be a king from the line of David that would sit on the throne of Israel forever, and that through the king, God would abolish chaos and evil, just like he did in creation. As long as Israel had a king, it seemed like the promise that God would set the whole world right through this people would be still on. There was only a few big rules that they had to follow so that God could live among them and save the world and to be basically be summarized as love God and love other people like you love yourself. The Israelites were absolutely terrible at following these rules. And the natural punishment for their sins, just like in the Garden of Eden, was exile away from God and away from the land that God had given them. Somehow God promised that even through this exile, uh, that would be used to accomplish what the, the vision of Israel being setting the world right. Um, but if you were an Israelite at this time, I imagine you would have a hard time believing it. God had invaders take over Israel, and there was no Israelite king for hundreds of years. First, the Babylonians ruled over the Jews, then the Persians, then the Greeks under Alexander, then the Romans slowly took over, and not having a king was a big deal. 
God had promised to David that a king from his line would always sit on the throne of Israel. And it seemed like, as long as there was an Israelite king, that God's relationship with Israel was still on. And if God's relationship with Israel was still on, that meant that God would bring the world back to the way it was supposed to be. But these invaders exiled the Israelites to foreign places, and they were taken away from their promised land. And even when they came back to Israel, they didn't really feel like they were back from the exile either. And God basically said as much. They lived under the oppression of foreign kingdoms for centuries, and they hoped that God would allow the rightful king of Israel to lead them. In the Old Testament, God was supposedly especially present in the temple. When the Israelites came back from the foreign lands, they built the temple up so that hopefully God would return to his people. But even God was said to not have come back to his temple, and that their only hope was described in Malachi 3, which says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will finally come to his temple, says the Lord Almighty. And that brings us finally to the New Testament. And it might feel a little bit weird to be talking about Christmas in July, but here we are. <laughs> I think it's interesting how Matthew decides to tell the story of Christmas. Um, in Matthew, the birth of Jesus is half a verse at the end of chapter 1. But he knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. There's no story about angels appearing to shepherds, or about how there's no room at the inn, or how they have to leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem, or the angel coming to Mary, or Mary singing a song, or any of that like there is in Luke. And what that does is it takes the action and it moves it away from Jesus' birth and focuses on how people reacted to his birth. Luke has a long narrative about how Jesus came to be born, but Matthew wants to focus on what happened after he was born. The Messiah came to the world, but how does the world receive him? And when Matthew describes it like that, it makes you ask the question, how would I have reacted to Jesus' birth? What is my response to Jesus now? What do I do now that the Messiah is here? We love to put ourselves in the shoes of Mary and Joseph, but really our position is much closer to the characters in this story. Just like us, they hear about the coming of the Messiah secondhand and have to wonder, what do we do with this information now? The Messiah coming is good news, right? But in this chapter, clearly not everyone thought so. They have to grapple with the question of who they really think is in charge, Herod or this little baby, Jesus. Of course, if we remember the whole Old Testament, we'll see that this is just part of a long line of times where God's plan is totally rejected by his people. The word Messiah is a Hebrew word that basically means rightful king. When the Messiah comes, the promise to David that a king will sit on his throne forever will be fulfilled. And when that happens, that means that not only would Israel not have foreign invaders occupying them, it would mean that God has returned back to his people. It would mean that the relationship between God and his people is still on. And because of that, God is going to save the world. The exile is over, and not only will the sins of Israel be paid for, but also the sins of the whole world. This is the only hope that Israel has, because they're not overthrowing Rome anytime soon. The Messiah is the one that's going to rule over Israel, and through Israel, he would bless everyone. Then, not only would Jews worship God the way they were supposed to, but people in the whole world, from whatever country or ethnicity, would worship him, and they would all be prosperous. So when you remember all of that, you would expect the Jews to be really excited that the Messiah is coming. But the way that this happens is totally unexpected. The text says, 
Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, look, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. They kind of already expect that everyone already knows that the king of the Jews has been born. The hopes of the Jewish people for millennia have come to fruition. The rightful king of Israel has returned after 500 years in exile. The promise to David is fulfilled. God's presence is back to Israel, and the world is being remade to his proper intention. The Jewish Messiah is returning to the Jewish people in accordance with the Jewish scriptures, and they hear about it through a couple of Gentiles, who are probably magicians, passing through Judah. Do you see how incongruous that is? The Jewish Messiah was announced to the Jewish people by a bunch of Gentile magicians who probably found out by performing astrology. And by the way, astrology and magic were two of the biggest things that Jews were not supposed to do. It's like if you as a kid found out that you got a really great present from your parents like a week before Christmas because I broke into your house and started playing with it. Nothing about the birth announcement of the Messiah is anywhere close to what could have been expected. Notice the way that the wise men say it. They say, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? As you might be able to tell, this is a bit of a sore subject. Herod the king was granted this exact title, the king of the Jews, in the Roman Senate in 37 BC. But the problem is pretty obvious. The Romans were the ones who called them the king of the Jews. Herod wasn't even a Jew. He was an Edomite. He was from the people who were some of the worst enemies of Israel. Herod had to be super brutal to everyone to ensure that no one questioned that he was actually the king of the Jews. He even had his own wife, who actually was a Jew, executed because he was paranoid that she was conspiring against him. His authority to be king of the Jews came entirely from Rome, not from God. And everyone knew it. But you don't challenge Rome. They're too powerful, and if you step out of line, you'll be destroyed. In fact, this was true for hundreds of years, even before Israel was officially part of the Roman Empire. All of the kings of Israel during this time claimed to be the king of the Jews. But actually, the entire reason that they were allowed to rule was because the Romans let them. So basically, from the very first words that came out of the wise men's mouth, they have stepped on a landmine. They basically said what everyone was thinking but wasn't willing to say. Herod isn't really the king of the Jews. The time's up for him. God is installing the real king of the Jews. But now both the Jews and Gentiles in this story have a decision to make. Will they follow the rightful king of the Jews, the Messiah who was prophesied to be the king of the world, and who would bring Israel back from exile and God back to his temple, or would they follow Rome, the big baddie that has kept them in line by force and taxes them brutally? What is so ironic here is the huge contrast between the reactions of the Gentile wise men and the Jewish leaders in this story. These Gentile wise men come from super far away, and they're totally ready to worship this new king who's being born, risking life and limb to be obedient to God even through adversity. Meanwhile, the Jews, who are supposed to be the beneficiaries of this coming king, hear about him and immediately search the scriptures to find out how to kill him. This is important. Let's read verses 3 to 5 again. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born, in Bethlehem in Judea. Keep this in mind. They didn't ask, is this really the Messiah? 
They believed the wise men that the Messiah had come. They even believed the scriptures that he would be born in Bethlehem. Every one of the hopes of Israel is being fulfilled in this baby that has just been born, and they believe it. But their very first thought is, how do we get, isn't how do we get on board with this, like the wise men. Their first thought is, we have to kill him. The Messiah is here. We know he's the Messiah, and he has to die right now. And gee, isn't that foreshadowing for the end of the gospel when they put the Messiah on a Roman cross? Now, you might be tempted to say, those silly people. We're good Christians, so we aren't at all tempted to do the same thing. But in a lot of ways, they understood what the coming of the Messiah meant more than we do. They knew that you can't serve Rome and the Messiah at the same time. If the rightful king of the world has come, there is no way that you can continue to make deals with puny little Rome. There's no time for any quote-unquote king of the Jews, like Herod, who are really puppets for Rome, if the actual king of the whole world has come. There's only one authority you can serve. The king of kings is here, so every earthly king must submit to him. About a month ago, we went through Psalm 2, which was one of the most important chapters that every Jew knew at this time. It said, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The Jews knew this chapter better than anyone, but they chose the side of the kings of the earth rather than the rightful king that God had installed. The coming of the Messiah necessarily means war with Rome. And you spent your whole life submitting to Rome because Rome has the strongest army the world has ever seen, and they are brutal and even genocidal in war. So you have two options, accept the Messiah and war with Rome, or kill the Messiah and maintain the peace. And these people decided to kill the Messiah. Aren't we in similar situations every day, though? We have to make the choice between scary but practical institutions like Rome and God. We have to satisfy our neighbors, our boss, our teachers, our friends, our government, our bank account, and all of those things. And sometimes we ha do have to choose between those things and God. Certainly a lot of the Jews wanted Israel to be restored and for the Messiah to come. But now is just not the time. They're saying, if the Messiah comes now, acting like he can actually liberate us from Rome, they will absolutely destroy us. We have no chance. I'm sure you can think of times where you've made similar decisions to compromise in face of a scary enemy. But you see what just happened there? They found themselves between a rock and a hard place. If you accept the Messiah, you anger Rome. If you accept Rome, you anger God. And you can understand why they chose Rome. When God sent his Messiah, they said, no, God, now's not the time. And they tried to kill him to oppose, appease Rome. They said, let's nip it in the bud. Make sure this Messiah stuff ends now, because if we allow things this <coughs> sorry, if we allow this to happen, things are not going to turn out well for us. They said, now is not the time to be idealistic. We need to be practical. Rome made us so Rome can unmake us. And so from the beginning of Jesus' life on earth until the end, the entire time that the actual real king of the king of the world was walking on earth, the Jews that were in power said, We have no king but Caesar. But then everything they feared Rome would do to them ended up happening anyway. Seventy years later, the Romans came and destroyed the temple and burned some people alive, 
And then half a century after that, they barred any Jews from ever entering Jerusalem ever again, and they tried to erase the Jewish people from existence. They decided to be pragmatic by appeasing Rome, but Rome's loyalty was short-lived and ineffective. Even worse, they found themselves on the wrong side of God himself. This is certainly one response to the Messiah coming. It says, we can serve God and get ourselves killed, or we can make a small concession to Rome for everyone's safety. But I think what this text warns you is that at the very least, you have to be careful whenever you take the pragmatic option. At its essence, what the pragmatic option says is, I fear humans more than I fear God. I'd rather make an enemy of God than displease worldly powers. And you can totally understand why. Rome is scary. Their armies are huge. How can I stand against them? But I can say confidently that it is better to have God on your side than any human. God is loyal to the greatest possible degree, sending his son for us when we were sinners and dying for us when we had no regard for him. By comparison, humans are fickle, and they'll sell you down the river the moment you're inconvenient to them. You make one compromising step away from God and toward humans, and they'll ask for another and another and another. You make one step toward God, and he'll rush toward you and help you gently along to be more and more the person you're supposed to be. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. The human yoke jerks you along and is constantly asking, what have you done for me lately? The pragmatic option looks attractive, but at its core, it's rejecting the Messiah who died for you and pleasing the world that only cares about you when you're useful to them. The coming of Jesus can be very inconvenient. He can ask you to do things that really aren't easy. He might ask you to take a stand against violence and materialism and compromised sexuality. And by doing so, you might find yourself on the wrong side of some scary enemies. The king of the Jews, even as a newborn, by his very nature asks you to defy those enemies to serve him. Because the very fact that there is this other king means that there's some authority greater than the scary enemies you might make. No matter how powerful Rome or your friends or the government or your boss or anyone who opposes God may be, their authority is nothing compared to the Messiah. You may think that you're being pragmatic by satisfying these human authorities. But if you do, you end up on the wrong side of God himself. If you choose the Messiah over these enemies, you will make the greatest possible friend, loyal to the greatest degree, loving you so much that he died for you, blessing you for a thousand generations, and promising resurrection and vindication on the last day. Now you can understand why the Jews have rejected the Messiah in favor of Rome, but these Gentiles have come far away to worship him and have totally flaunted the power of Rome in doing so. And the question that's worth asking is why? What could they possibly stand to benefit from this new king? He's supposed to be the Messiah, the king of the Jews. He's supposed to liberate Israel up from the oppression of Rome for the Jews. He's supposed to end the exile that has been going on for the last 500 years for the Jews. The Gentiles really have very little reason to care about this baby being born as a foreign king, but somehow they come to be really excited about the birth of the Messiah. We'll never know exactly what's going on in these people's heads. But we can know for sure that what's happening right now in this passage is a greater fulfillment of Israel's role in the world than anything that happened in the whole Old Testament. God's covenant with Abraham was that through Israel, all the, worlds of the nations of the world would be blessed. Israel's dream in Psalm 2 was that the rightful king of Israel would sit at God's right hand 
while all the nations of the earth would be subdued in worship. Isaiah 60 says that all the nations of the earth would flock to Israel, wait for it, from the east on camels, bringing gold and frankincense to worship and admire this Messiah. But even at the height of Israel's power, they only got a whiff of it when some of the most powerful nations around Israel began to briefly see Solomon as their equal. Now you have a few Gentiles from faraway lands coming to recognize the baby lying in the stable as a king greater than any of the kings of the world and defying the power of Rome to do it. But even that is just a foretaste of what's happening in this very room right now. We are, most of us, Gentile Christians who now enjoy the full blessings of God's covenant with the Jews. God's plan to bring people all over the world to worship him has been fulfilled. And these three wise men were just the first of literally billions of Gentiles that have come to enjoy the blessings of a relationship with God. And I think we take this for granted all the time. We are living proof that God has fulfilled his promises to bring the Gentiles to worship him, which would have seemed impossible when it was promised to this backwater nation called Israel, a tiny power found itself sandwiched between the strongest and most brutal empires in the world. In Jesus, God has already completed the role that Israel was meant to fulfill for hundreds of years. But the New Testament ultimately gives us a choice. We can choose King Jesus and become a part of his nation, which carries the presence of God, just like God had promised to Abraham in the beginning. Or we can choose Rome as our king and be a part of the chaos. If we want to choose the right option, we can follow the lead of these Gentile magicians who had everything to lose by following the Messiah. They recognize that the coming of the Messiah means there's no more struggle for wealth or power. There's no more question about which side we take in some alliance. The Messiah, there's only one authority that's worth coming, worth following. The Messiah is the scariest enemy and the most loyal friend. Choosing the Messiah while brave is the only rational decision. And they were the first of literally billions of Gentiles that made the same decision. History proves them right. That scary Roman Empire lasted another few short centuries, and nothing is left of them but ruins. The Messiah's kingdom is here right now in this church today. What they both recognized, and what we sometimes fail to recognize today, is that the coming of the Messiah means you have to make a choice. By the end of the New Testament, that choice has become the defining characteristic of whether you are part of God's people. It's no longer whether you keep kosher, or whether you were circumcised, or whether you celebrate holidays like Purim. It's whether you recognize Jesus as king of the world and live under his authority. You serve the Messiah, or you serve the scary powers like Rome. You can make an ally of Christ, who died for you and defeated death for you. Or you can make an ally of Rome, who will never be satisfied until you totally give yourself to it. When the king of the world came, God returned to his people. But his people now would include not only Jews, but also faithful Gentiles. And since his people changed, he instituted a new law, follow King Jesus. And there's no doubt, there's all kinds of reasons that, sorry, (coughs) it might be scary. But fundamentally, choosing Jesus means following a loyal master, while choosing the world means constant service to make sure you're always useful and you aren't cast aside. Thanks. <laughs> Choose today which one you'll serve. Let's pray. King Jesus, give us the courage we need to follow you and defy the authorities that, that hate. Uh, sorry. 
whoops, something's in my throat. <laughs> Give us the courage we need to follow you and defy the authorities which hate us. We praise you because you are a far better master than any of the powers that want our allegiance. Give us strength so that our, so that our actions can reflect the kingdom that you have created in this world. Amen.